get going on that. All right, so a um, couple things. Well, one thing coming up due is the extra credit assignment. So make sure uh, that is done. If you emailed me as of this morning, if you did it like a minute or two ago, I might not have gotten it. But if you emailed me as of this morning, I've already replied. Uh, if you've already submitted it to the Dropbox, you should see the credit on there for you because I went and did those just a few minutes ago while people were coming into class to make sure everything is up to date. So if you've already done it, you should be able to go into D2L, see grades, and see your 15 points there. Uh, if you're not seeing it somewhere, let me know so we can look at which step we're missing. If you're going to do it, and again, it is an extra credit, so it is optional. If you are going to do it, because it requires a response from me, make sure you send the email by 8 o'clock tonight if you're still doing it. You can submit to the Dropbox till 6 a.m. in the morning. But if you wait until midnight to send me the email, I'm not going to see it till morning. And while you can still do it, it'll be late. So if you're going to want to get it done and everything done on time, make sure you get me the email by 8 o'clock. If I get it by 8 o'clock, I will make sure I check email shortly after that, and I'll make sure you have your response back. If not, I may see it if you email it at 8.15 or 8.30. I may not uh, check it again until morning. So just to let you know on, on those as to what's going on. So that's the only one that's due today. Essentially, send me the email if you're subscribing. That's great. Uh, many of you did. If you're not, just send me a note. You know, I prefer not to subscribe or whatever. A couple of you have done that. That's perfectly fine. I will send, it ba send back an attachment. You just download that attachment, upload it to the Dropbox, and I'll give you the credit for it. So just to mainly to try out a few, try out a few, uh, few things and working with the attachments on the Dropbox as well. Next week, I'm looking for, I'm going to collect your solar observations for the first time. Minimum of one for credit, so hopefully get one measurement in by then, date, time, sky conditions, object height, and shadow length. Um, if you're taking a picture of it, and I know I got one picture, I haven't had a chance to reply back that someone has sent to me, I will take a look at those and give you any comments or feedback as to your observations. I will also give you comments once I get these uh, next week. So one minimally, hopefully if you can get two or so, you're really on a good, uh, good pace for them. Uh, next week, we also have the first homework is due. Uh, homework one covers the first four chapters. We're going to do two and three this week and then four the beginning of next week. So we should be on track to have homework one due uh, next, next Thursday, not two days from now, but the following week. Uh, that, will cover the, that covers those first four chapters and is kind of preparation for the exam. Uh, those are the same chapters that will be covered on the exam coming up uh, the following Thursday. So on the exam day, we'll have the exam. Give me one second. Let me just finish my thought here. Uh, on the exam day, we'll have the exam and then go right into lab. Just otherwise, I'll forget what I was going to say. Sorry. Yes? Um, so the homework got bumped up. Did I change it? Yes. What did I have it before? It was September 18th. Then I, missed it, then I must not have changed it on my sheet. That's fine. We'll do the 18th. Yeah, OK. Thank you. I didn't change it on my sheet. I try not to go backwards on them. The exam, I still have the 20th, right? Because I'm yes. trying to get that in as soon as I can. I will change it on my sheet, so I will. I probably changed it up on the board, meaning to change it on my sheet. And you know, absent-minded professor just completely forgets and doesn't remember. So I appreciate you bringing it to my attention. So yes, homework will be due the 18th. We should be through with everything for the 13th, but that's nice because it gives me a little bit of extra leeway if we're running behind, because we are covering two chapters this, this week. All right. And then the exam will be the 20th. 
We're definitely on track for that. We'll probably have actually been into chapter five, maybe even onto chapter six at the time we're doing the exam. So, um, because we should be on to four, yeah. So we may be a little bit ahead, we may be doing a little bit ahead, but instead of giving you the exam on Tuesday and trying to rearrange everything, I'm trying to schedule them on Thursdays, which is when I'm doing the labs. All right, other questions, and thank you for catching that for me. So we're all good, all right. So picture of the day for today. This is the moon over here. In fact, I'm going to shut this down a little bit so you can see kind of the detail on there. I can, oops, oh, turn lights off, not on. There we go. Uh, this, is the, this is the moon. Not a very nice, beautiful image of it, a very fuzzy. Um, taken in Italy, and this is over uh, Mount Etna, volca the volcano here. So you can see actually part of the volcano erupting. Now it looks like the way the, moon, the way the whole image is set up that this volcano is distorting or destroying part of the moon because you have bits of the moon that look like they're kind of coming off as well here. Has nothing to do with that. The moon is hundreds of thousands of miles beyond the mountain, well out into space. So there's no way this volcano here on Earth can possibly affect the moon. However, something a little closer to us can. And that's the Earth's atmosphere. This entire thing is an atmospheric effect caused by the Earth's atmosphere. So if we got rid of all the atmosphere on the Earth, other than immediately suffocating, if we had some way to be able to still breathe, we would see just a nice sharp image of the moon here. And you could still see the volcano erupting here out and out. You know, the molten rock erupting out. But we wouldn't see any of this distortion around the edge of the moon. That's all atmosphere. The Earth's atmosphere will do it. And the reason it's worse on this side of the moon than on this side, there's still a little bit, if you actually look close at the image, there's a little bit of um, variations in the surface there. But the reason it's so much worse here is because the heat from the volcano is heating up the atmosphere. And a hot atmosphere causes more turbulence and distorts things more. So we get more distortions. We see that if you look at the stars on a summer night, nice hot, hazy summer night, they twinkle like crazy. Stars don't twinkle themselves. It's all, it's all the Earth's atmosphere doing that. So when stars are twinkling, it's really light coming through the atmosphere, and it makes them look like they're jumping around, very slightly changing their positions. If you look at the stars on a nice, crisp, clear, bitterly cold winter night, they're nice and steady. They're twinkling a lot less. It's all atmosphere. When you're looking close to the horizon, like you are here, you're looking at an angle, you're looking through a lot of atmosphere, plus you have all the extra added turbulence of this heat. And that's causing this distortion, which kind of makes for a cool picture in that you know, this volcano is kind of ripping the moon apart. But in reality, you wouldn't see that. If you could get rid of the atmosphere, you'd see a nice crisp moon, still a pretty picture of the moon next to uh, the volcano erupting there. All right, question, yeah? Yeah, it's the same kind of thing. You look at the atmosphere; it's just a lot more turbulent, a lot more turbulent. So yeah, the pavement is going to look a little. I mean, you're going to get all that fuzziness, haziness. Yeah, it's all that. It's all the atmosphere moving around because the light has to travel through the atmosphere, and when the atmosphere is moving and the light's coming through it, instead of the light rays coming nice and straight, they wiggle up and down. They come from all sorts of directions, and it distorts them. So yeah, very similar. Good. Other questions. All right, well, let's go ahead on to chapter two. And we hopefully should be able to get through chapter two and on to 
get a good get a start into three today. We'll see how it goes. But chapter two is looking at what we call the celestial sphere. So we're going to start looking at the sky, and we're going to look at the sky first as to what we see from Earth how things are viewed from Earth. We're going to be jumping out and in another month we'll be talking about stars and galaxies and all of the distant objects out there. But to start off we look at some things that are a little bit closer. What the sky is like, you know, how we can see things, the constellations, uh, the moon, eclipses, the phases of the moon and things are, that we'll be covering over these first four chapters. So the first thing we want to look at is what is, what do we mean by the celestial sphere? You've seen it, right? maybe not know it by name, but if you go out and look at the sky, what you're seeing is the celestial sphere. It is a way of visualizing and representing the sky. It is what we call a geocentric or Earth-centered model of the universe. We know that's wrong, right? the Earth is not at the center of the universe, but it is a good way of visualizing things because we do when we look out there, it looks like everything is out there on this great big sphere and moving around the Earth. So it works very well for describing things like positions, for constellations, it works for all that, for the stars, the planets. They all seem to be attached to this celestial sphere. And when you look at it, if you go out and look at the stars, they don't look like one's here and one's a hundred light years behind it or a thousand light years behind it or the galaxies are millions of light years behind. They all look like they're attached to the same sphere. So it works out as a good way to be able to describe things. So when we want to look at the celestial sphere, some of the terms here uh, that we're going to look at, I'm going to define these on the next slide. So. Uh, you can take a, look at the, uh, take a look at those there. But there's the Earth. When we talk about the celestial sphere, there's the Earth. And there's this great sphere that contains everything that is orbiting around the Earth. Some of the different terminology that we use is quite related to what we use for the Earth. We'll talk about, we talk about the poles and the equator on the Earth. We have the North Celestial Pole and the South Celestial Pole, very similar to the Earth's North and South Pole. We have the equator, there's the Earth's equator, there's a celestial equator as well. Earth's equator divides the Earth into two parts, northern and southern hemisphere. Well, the celestial equator does the same thing to the sphere of the sky, divides it into two parts. Um, we also have one thing a little bit different, we have this what we call the ecliptic. That's actually, part, that's actually related to the Earth as well, the ecliptic is the path of the sun. It's the path that the sun seems to take over the course of a year. So if you mapped out the position of the sun in the sky and plotted it, it would seem to make this red line, it would follow that red path over the course of the year. Um, the other things, things like the vernal equinox, I'm going to define on the next one. Vernal equinox is just where the sun's path happens to cross the celestial equator. Vernal equinox is the first day of spring. Right? We all know that as the seasons changing, but what does it really mean? All it means is that the sun has gone from being south of the equator the day before to being north of the equator. That's all the, that's all the first day of spring means. The sun is getting higher and higher in the sky. So the day before on say the, the one day, the day before the first day of spring, it was a little bit below the equator. Not by much, but a little tiny bit. 
Sometime during that day, the first day of spring, it crosses the equator heading north and is then, now it's spring. We have the autumnal equinox or the fall equinox coming up. It's the same thing except it's going the other direction, right? Now the sun is going to be going from being above the equator here, you know, right now we're right about here, very, very close to that. In a couple of weeks, we'll actually be down below the equator. You should see that in your solar observations. You'll see the shadows getting shorter or longer and longer. Sorry, we're in fall. See the shadows getting longer and longer as we go over the semester. So let me give you the definitions here. And again, it can be a lot. Make sure if you want these, I do have all of these are up on uh, D2L for you. So if you miss something, feel free. You can always go get them and print them out if you miss, if you miss something when I'm going through them. So we want to define what some of these points are and zenith is one of those. Zenith is the point that is straight overhead. So if you go out, look straight overhead up at the sky, anything that's there is said to be at your zenith. That depends on where you are on the earth. What is overhead here in York is not what's overhead if you're out in San Francisco. So if you're looking at something one night and you look up there at the sky, and you see this bright star overhead and you call a friend who lives out in California and say, hey, there's this bright star overhead, they're not going to see it. Because that star hasn't gotten overhead to them yet. In fact, if you call them at the right time, sun may have already set for you, sun may still be up there. So things that are in different positions, some of things like this depend on where you are on the earth too. So your zenith and your horizon, the first two definitions here are very specific to where you are. Do they change much if you walk 10 feet one direction or another? No. If you drive from York up to Harrisburg, do they change much? Not really. It's a very small fraction. But if you go down to Florida, go up to Canada, go far east, far west, they can change significantly and you will, everybody will not see the same things on the zenith or on the horizon. The other parts are fixed to the sky so they don't change. Where the celestial pole is, either north or south, and all that is is imagine the Earth's pole just stretching out into the sky. So wherever the Earth's north pole is, that stretches out into the sky. Where it crashes into that celestial sphere is the north celestial pole. That doesn't matter where you are. If you see something near the north celestial pole here, Polaris, probably heard of the, maybe heard of the nice star, the north star known as Polaris, very close to the pole. Well, if you see it here and you call your friend out in California and it's dark, right? assume it's actually nighttime for them too, they would see the star and they would see it also very close to the North Celestial Pole. The North Celestial Pole is a point that is fixed to the sky. The zenith is a point that is, the zenith and horizon are points that are fixed to your location. So if an object is near the Celestial Pole or near the Celestial Equator and they can identify where that is, Everybody's going to see it in the same spot relative to the sky. So that's what those are. This poles, you could have the south celestial pole too. Much harder to identify because there's no bright pole star there. We just happen to be lucky in the north right now that there is a star that happens to be close to the north celestial pole. Hasn't always been that way and won't always be that way. And right now there's nothing close to the south celestial pole. There's ways to identify it, but it's, hard, it's not something that's very easy to find as it is here in the north. So those are the poles in the equator. The ecliptic is the path of the sun. I mentioned that the last time. That's the path that the sun seems to take. 
It goes through a group of constellations you're probably familiar with, which are the constellations of the zodiac. So Aries, Pisces, Taurus, Gemini, etc. Those are the constellations that the ecliptic goes through and is the path that the sun takes. That's where in astrology your sun sign comes from is supposedly, at least based on what things were uh, over a thousand years ago, where the sun was when you were born. If the sun was, would have been located in this constellation. So we'll take a look at that in one of my other sections while we'll I talk about that a little bit more. But that's what those, the, they are. Those constellations really aren't anything amazing. In fact, many of them have no bright stars at all. Aries, Pisces, um, Aquarius really don't have any bright stars. About half or more of the constellations of the zodiac have no bright stars. But they happen to be in a special place in the sky. And that's the path of the sun, the moon, and the planets. So they were very important to ancient astronomers because they happened to go through those. And then the vernal equinox, I already mentioned that. Um, that is, vernal equinox is the first day of spring. There's also an autumnal or fall equinox, which is the first day of, uh, first day of fall. So all it means is that's where the ecliptic and the celestial equator intersect. And in the case of the vernal equinox, the sun is moving north. It's going from south of the equator to north, meaning that the seasons are beginning to change. Sorry, vernal, equ yeah, vernal equinox, south going to north. Now we have it north going to south. So if we're going from north higher to south lower, it's going to start getting colder. Right? The sun is getting lower and lower and lower in the sky every day. So we should see a trend over the course of the semester. And we're pretty confident that when we're finishing up and taking the final exam in December, it's probably going to be colder than it is right now. You know, that's how the seasons are changing, and it's doing it because the sun is getting lower and lower in the sky. The vernal equinox is just kind of marking, vernal and autumnal equinox are just marking that tipping point. When does it cross the equator? When does it go from being in the northern sky, giving us warmer weather, to being in the southern sky and giving us cooler weather? Now, some of the things we can see. Uh, when we look at the sky, if we actually look towards the north, we see a bright star, not quite at the pole. The pole would be right here at the center, uh, but that would be Polaris, the north star. It's a relatively bright star, but not the brightest star in the sky by far. It's actually number 50. If you count all the stars in the sky, there's 49 stars brighter than Polaris. It's important because of its location. It's very close to the North Celestial Pole, and it helps us identify that. And we'll look on the next slide a little bit as to why that is important. But when we look at these, we look at the stars, and we look at the motion over the course of a day. This is an image you take. Put, your cam put a camera on a tripod, point it towards the north. It's got to be very dark, right? Don't do it on a campus with real bright lights or things all around the place. But if you have a nice dark site and you point it north and leave the camera open for 15, 20 minutes, leave the shutter open, you'll actually st start to see star trails. The stars are moving. Okay. That's what we would have thought long ago, right? Now we know it's not the stars moving, it's actually the Earth rotating. So you're actually seeing the effects of the Earth's rotation here, that you're getting all of these little trails. Not because the stars are really moving on a celestial sphere, but because the Earth is rotating. So what that means is everything rotates around the celestial pole. That's the axis. Everything goes around that. So if you could imagine, continue these, right? You have these little arcs, you could continue them on. They're all going to make little circles. 
So Polaris would make a little tiny circle around the pole. These other stars would make bigger and bigger and bigger circles. If those circles don't cross the horizon, it's what we call a circumpolar star. It never sets. Big example of that is the Big Dipper. Right? Big Dippers why do that because that's one of those ones that everybody can find or most people can find. You can find the seven stars of the Big Dipper. They're always up. Doesn't matter whether you look for them now or you look for them six months from now or three months from now. Every day of the year, assuming it's dark and clear, right? You know, can't find them during the day. But you can go out at night and find the Big Dipper. Those stars never go, they go around in big circles around the pole, but they never dip below the horizon. Other stars will rise and set. If they're further away from the pole, they make bigger and bigger circles. Eventually, those circles will cross the horizon. And you can imagine something like this. Crosses the horizon, goes around, and will come back down and cross the horizon again. So every other star will rise and set. So if they're far away from the pole, they'll rise and set. If they're close to the pole, then they can be what we call circumpolar, meaning they're never below, never go below the horizon. Now, why Polaris is so important is that it was really important for navigation. Not so much now, right? You've got GPS that can pinpoint you to however many feet to where you are. However, that wasn't the case 60, 70 years ago, and hundreds of years ago, and thousands of years ago. You needed ways to be able to navigate. Ways to be able to travel the oceans. Right? It's not quite so bad when you're traveling across country. You've got landmarks and things that are, can tell you where you're going. You can mark trees and say, here's my path that I made. However, when you're trying to do that on the ocean, one stretch of ocean looks a lot like any other stretch of ocean. There's no difference. So one of the key points was that what we found was that the altitude of the pole, how high the pole star is above your horizon, is exactly the same as your latitude how far you are above the north uh, above the equator so the example here is if you're at a 40 degree latitude then the pole is 40 degrees above the horizon if you walk north the pole's going to get higher and higher in the sky if you walk 10 degrees north that's a lot go from 40 to 50 degrees then the pole will have gotten higher in the sky if you walk all the way up to the north pole then the pole, pole star will be straight up overhead so it tells you your latitude. Not your exact position, but it's a good way when you're traveling. And remember, travel now, right? We can fly across what fly across the ocean in a day. Um, ships take a lot, took a lot longer, could take months to get across. So it's very easy that if you're just slightly off, you could go and be leaving from Europe, traveling across the Atlantic, and you're slowly deviating. And instead of landing in Boston, you can end up down in Florida. Over the course of months, a little bit of a change can make a big difference. So knowing where that was was a big difference, was a big importance to people to be able to navigate. You could just find out. You keep the pole star. If your pole star starts getting higher and higher in the sky, you're heading too far north. If it starts getting lower in the sky over a course of a week or two, you're heading too far south and you could adjust your course. Remember, you've got no other landmarks there. You're out in the middle of the ocean, Atlantic, Pacific, wherever, you have no other landmarks. You need something to keep you on track. You can use other patterns of stars and you, there are things that you can do, but the North Pole is a very convenient one. It works very well if you're north of the equator. So whatever your latitude is, 40 degrees, 50 degrees, go down to Florida and it's down to 30 degrees, then the pole gets lower and lower in the sky. 
If you go far enough south, it'll actually be on the equator. If you go down to the Earth's equator, then the pole is going to be on your horizon, barely visible. If you go south of the equator, then you, don't, you can't see the North Pole. North Pole would be completely invisible. You could see the South Pole. Again, there's no bright star there, but you could use other stars around it to kind of pinpoint its location and keep track of it. So it's one way that has been used throughout history for navigation. Not, again, not so much now. Right? We don't need it. You've got GPS satellites that can pinpoint your location, whether you're traveling across the ocean or driving across country. But it was very important, not even all that long ago, to be able to find locations. So when we look at motions here, we have a couple different kinds of motions of the celestial sphere and motions that were seen in the sky. There's a daily motion that we see where the celestial sphere seems to rise and set. That's just caused by the Earth. That's the Earth moving, spinning on its axis every day. So why do stars rise and set every day? Why does the sun rise and set? Why does the moon rise and set? Ignore what they're doing. It's the, that's all due to the Earth spinning on its axis. They all have their own motions. The moon is moving around us, but that has nothing to do with why it rises and sets. It rises and sets because the Earth is spinning. So the sun does the same thing. There's also an annual motion that we see of the celestial sphere when we look at objects. Objects don't stay at one point relative, certain objects don't stay at one point relative to the stars. The sun is a good example. So here we see that at certain times of year the sun will appear to be in various constellations. So if you're over here, you look at the sun, the sun appears to be in Virgo. Six months later, now you're looking at the sun, the sun appears to be in Pisces. In reality, that's all just due to the Earth again. Yes, ma'am? So each planet has their own celestial sphere? Or yes. The celestial sphere would be different for any planet. If you went to Mars, Polaris would not be anywhere near the North Pole. So it's just planets that have their own, or every, every pl Any planet would have a different celestial sphere. If you looked at this, now, would the constellations look the same from Mars? Yeah. You could go to Mars and you could find Orion. You could find the Big Dipper. They'd all look exactly the same from Mars. But the positioning, where the North Pole is, would be different. Where the equator is, would be different. That's, that comes from the planet. Remember the, remember the equator is our equator stretched out to the sky. The pole is the pole stretched out to the sky. Mars's pole isn't in the same position as ours. So the North Pole of Mars is going to point towards some other star. Or maybe towards no star. The North Pole of Venus will point towards a different star any of the planets. It's always going to be something different. So that, you're correct, that is good. That's, that really does depend on where you are. So certain things would be roughly the same, but other things might change. Things like the ecliptic. You know, the constellations of the zodiac for Mars are going to be different. What, what constellations the sun happens to pass? They're going to be close, but the constellations themselves will look exactly the same. We're not move, moving to Mars does not change how the stars are going to look. You have to move a lot further out in space for that. Good, thank you. Um, annual motion. So we're moving around. As we travel around, the sun appears to move. So for right now, assume that the sun is just sitting still. We're moving around it. So that makes the sun appear to move because we don't feel like we're moving. And the sun then appears to move through these 12 constellations over the course of the year. 
Again, those are the ones I already mentioned. We called the constellations of the zodiac. And if you look at them there, they're ones, they're names that you're familiar with. They're the ones that you see in a horoscope. And again, we'll talk about that a little bit, a little bit coming up. But planets will also travel through these same constellations as well. The planets, the moon, the sun, all of those objects travel through the same group of constellations because our solar system is essentially flat. It's a very flat disk, so all the orbits are very close to being the, sa- being the same. Now, the other objects that we look at, things like the planets, um, tend to have different motions relative to the sky. When we watch things and we watch the sun, how it moves, the sun just made this nice little path and it travels through in a nice circle around these constellations. The moon did the same thing. If you watch the moon over the course of a month, it travels through pretty much these same 12 constellations. The planets are a little bit different. And the planets were the five planets that were known to the ancients, right? We have a couple more that are that are now included. But there were five planets that were known to the ancient astronomers. So Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn. Earth was not a planet at this point. Earth was not known to be a planet. It was different than all these others. And there were the sun and the moon that moved through. So with these five planets, Uranus, Neptune had not yet been discovered. When you looked at the positions of the planets and you watched their positions, the stars always stayed the same. Right? If you looked at the Big Dipper years ago, you saw the nice little uh, shape of the Dipper. If you go look at it today, it looks exactly the same. It hasn't changed. So all those stars are moving together as a nice group. Well, planets didn't do that. When planets moved, they actually moved through the stars. So they would actually travel a path like the sun or the moon and go through different constellations. That's how they got their name as wanderers because planets meant wanderer, that they were wandering through the stars. So they were different. Even though they looked like stars, they were wandering through and traveling through the other stars. And that gave rise to something we'll be looking at coming up, which we called retrograde motion. Unlike the sun, which just would have gone straight and then come around again and done the whole thing again and make this nice big loop, or the moon, The planets would go in one direction, stop, turn around, stop again, and go back forward again. Retrograde motion was just meant this time that they were going backwards relative to their normal motion, relative to the motion of the sun and the stars. This we'll see is really important for trying to be able to understand and explain how the planets move because scientifically if you want to predict the positions of the planets, you've got to explain why the planet is going backwards. Nice straight motions are easy to explain. It's going in a nice circle. It's orbiting around the Earth, right? like the moon. But other planets are making much more complex motions. All right, so the last section here I wanted to look at briefly was what we would call the constellations. And I wanted to mention how the const definition had changed. In ancient times, a constellation was just a grouping of bright stars. That's what you'd see today. The Big Dipper, which isn't a constellation, but is part of is the main bright part of what we call Ursa Major or the Large Bear, is mainly that grouping of stars, that bright grouping of stars that represented the bear to the ancients. Orion represented the hunter, bright of set of bright stars. Any of the others, it was a grouping of bright stars. If there were no bright stars around, there was no constellation there. Now astronomers, not quite a hundred years ago, changed this and actually made a definition of what a constellation is. 
and defined it to be, or divided, so they divided the sky into 88 regions using what had already been done. So we didn't change all the constellations. Some new ones got made because you know, the ancient Greeks and others who ma- named a lot of the constellations, there's actually telesco- or, sorry, um, constellations called telescopium and microscopium, which you know, telescope and microscope were not known in ancient times. So there were some modern constellations that have been made out of the fainter groupings of stars, and especially down in the southern hemisphere, that had not previously been named. So there are some new constellations that were put in there, but now it means it's just a region of the sky. So there might be a bright star nearby, there might be a whole big group where there's hardly any bright stars nearby. Kind of like, say the lower 48 states, if you point at a map of the United States, you're pointing at a state. Doesn't matter where your finger happens to land, you're pointing at one of the states. Now if you're pointing out west, you might be hundreds of miles from any big city be the bright star. But you're still pointing within one of the states and that's what astronomers redefined so that there are no empty spaces in the sky. Even if there seems to be nothing there, it's still part of one of these 88 constellations. Okay, so finishing up this first section, again I talked about the celestial sphere, how we use that to visualize the sky. Um, I talked about how the appearance will change a little bit depending on where you're located on the Earth. So where the pole star is changes depending on where you are on the Earth. Uh, The planets and stars have different motions. And we're going to look at that coming up over this in chapters 2 and 3. We're going to be looking at that this week. And then I talked about the definitions. All right, questions before we jump back to ancient. Ancient, ancient times. So astronomy was really one of the first, was really the first science. And most other sciences have kind of split off from it over the years. A lot of them had their origins in astronomy, even things like mathematics, you know, built up around astronomy. Physics, um, all are cover, all are really a part of astronomy. So why, why was it so important, other than the fact that you didn't have anything else to do, right? You didn't have you know, what did you do once it's got dark? You didn't have light sources, you didn't have any kind of electric lights, you didn't have internet, you didn't have, you know, thing, games to play and things. People would study the sky. But it was also important for them. That's where the calendar comes from. The calendar, everything that we use today in terms of a calendar, the week, the month, the, uh, the days, are all astronomical, the years, they're all astronomical. That was how we originally put the calendar together. Um, In terms of ancient Egypt, for agriculture it was really important because they could tell when the bright star Sirius started to rise at a certain time of day, when they could first see it in the sky, it meant the Nile was getting ready to flood. So important right there, right? You're in the middle of the desert. When the Nile floods, all of a sudden you've got water. So now you can get ready for for planting. You know when the time is going to be. You don't want to be right. You want to be prepared. So it was that they had a little bit of warning, and that wasn't the only one. But there were other cases where that was used for things like navigations and calendar. The Polynesians, right? Got all the little islands out in the Pacific. If you want to navigate from one island to the next, you need to be able to use the stars. You know, thousands of years ago when you didn't have GPS, so you had to be able to navigate, know the positions of the stars, and be able to map them out very well and use that for navigation. So it was very, very important for all of these things. 
Now some of the ones that are common that you hear of, ancient uh, astronomy, I'm just giving you one example here. There are many, many of these uh, types of things scattered around the world. Um, Stonehenge is one of the, probably one of the best known, which is why I selected it here. Uh, this is out in uh, England, great stone circle there. And we believe, we don't know, but we believe it has astronomical significance. It's hard to tell because back in Stone Age times, they didn't leave us lots of manuals to go through and say, here's what you're supposed to do. Stand in this place in this day and you will see this. So we're working backwards. Well, here's what it is. And if you happen to stand at the center, uh, right around the center, and you look out straight along this axis here, out here, there's actually another stone out here, um, out by one of the highways that's now built. And if you look there, the sun rises right over that stone on the first day of summer. Could it be coincidence? Maybe, but it's hard to believe that you know, something is going to be, you know, it's not like there's hundreds of stones there. Well, then eventually, yes, yeah, something's going to match up. But there's one main, what they call the heel stone out there. And on the first day of summer, not a month before, not a month after, the sun will rise, on that day, will rise exactly over the heel stone. So we think that this was put together over thousands of years as a calendar. You can also find all sorts of other alignments in it. Then you start to wonder how many of them were intended and how many of them just happened to be accidental based on the way it was set up with the sun. So it may not have been you know, completely. Again, we don't have an owner's manual to say this is what is meant to, meant to do. But we do think that there are enough alignments that they're not all just by random chance. If, right, if we just go out, in the, go out in the courtyard, out in the parking lot, and put a bunch of stone things in as markers, you know, what are the odds that something's going to happen to do on a specific important day of the year that the sun's going to happen to rise in one of those directions? Maybe, but if we just do them randomly, probably not. So we do think that this is, does have astronomical significance in terms of a calendar. There are also others. There's more in Ireland. There are others in Europe. There's also some in uh, America. Uh, in the Americas, the Indians of the Southwest have some that line up with various astronomical events. There's others down in Africa, Australia. So it's not confined. It's not just you know, Stonehenge. I do that one because it's the one everybody knows of or has probably heard of. Uh, if I pick out some of the other ones, then there's things that nobody's there. I'd have to go through a lot more to explain it and give more background on it. But there are a lot of these things that do seem to have astronomical significance. Might be the first day of summer. Might be the first day of winter. Might be a moon, ri moon rising. Uh, the Mayans uh, did a lot, and they lined their stuff up with Venus. So it was all the patterns of Venus and things. So it's not necessarily other others. Um, Chinese did the Jupiter. I think it was Chinese did Jupiter that all their stuff is going around the patterns of Jupiter, which has a 12-year orbit. So there are certain things that are all, they're all, they all do things a little bit differently, but there are patterns that are seen all over the world. So just giving you one example there, but I don't want to say that's it. There's a lot more than that that you can see. Then we're going to jump forward, because we don't have time to go through too much detail. But I want to go back and talk about the ancient Greeks. So what they gave us, and these are some of the some of the names that you'll see as I come up on the next few slides. I'm going to go over some of these, not all of them in detail. But Eudoxus was one who gave us some of the very earliest models of the universe. 
How did the whole universe work? How did, the universe at this point would have been the solar system. It would have been the Earth, the Sun, the Moon, and the five planets, and then the sphere of the stars. So it's not universe in our sense of universe today. We talk about galaxies and all these other stars and star clusters and uh, very large formations. This, the universe at that point was very, very small. Aristotle gave us a couple of things. We knew even back in ancient times, the Greek knew, Greeks knew that the Earth was round. So they could demonstrate that the Earth was round, the way that ships disappeared over the horizon, and by eclipses. Eclipses we'll talk about a little bit later, but when we look at an eclipse of the moon, we're seeing the Earth's shadow on the moon. The Earth's shadow on the moon is always round, every single eclipse. There's only one object that always casts a round shadow, a sphere. The Earth were you know, a cylinder, then sometimes it would be at one angle or another, and you'd get some weird shapes to the shadow. That never happened. So even at Greek times, they knew that the Earth had to be round. They could demonstrate that. Um, he also gave us the geocentric universe, the model that lasted for thousands of years. Um, let's see, Eratosthenes talked about measuring the circumference. Again, I'm going to look at some of these in more detail, so I'm not going to explain them here and then go through and do it again. Aristarchus actually gave us the idea, was the first astronomer that we know of, that suggested that maybe the Earth isn't the center, but the Sun is at the center. He was never taken seriously at the time, and a lot of the work from this time is gone, so we don't know all the details, so not like today, where everything we write exists permanently, right? Everything's got a permanent record someplace out on the internet. If you put something up there, it's always there. Well, lots of this work was destroyed. In fact, we don't have any work of Aristarchus remaining. But we do have people who talked about what he said and said that, talked about what he had said that the sun was the center of the universe. So lots of the early work is actually destroyed. Uh, Hipparchus gave us our magnitudes that we'll be looking at later. And Ptolemy is the one who gave us the big mathematical model that we'll want to look at. So I'm going to look at each of these in a little bit more, uh, some of these in a little bit more detail here. And the first one I want to look at is Aristotle. So Aristotle gave us a couple of things. He said that the heavens are perfect and that everything moves in circular orbits and at uniform speeds. Well, that made sense if the heavens are perfect. Everything moves in the perfect shape, which is a circle, and everything moves at a uniform speed. They're not going to change. That was the basis of the solar system models for over a thousand years. Based on what Aristotle gave us, that's what we used for a thousand years. More than a thousand, more than a thousand years. But that was the basis of everything that we used. And it was based on these two things. We didn't have any proof of them. Why do the heavens have to be perfect? Why does everything move in a circular orbit in a uniform speed? They're what we call postulates. We just accept them as true. It's not a bad thing. We do that all the time. Right? If you've taken geometry class, right, you have certain postulates. You know, Parallel lines never intersect. Do you have to prove it? No. You, certain things are just taken as fact. Well, any model that we make makes certain assumptions like that. Einstein does the same thing. Einstein says the speed of light is the, speed, is the maximum speed of the universe. He doesn't prove it. We've never found anything that goes faster, but it's, it's an assumption that goes into all of his theories. If we ever find something that goes faster than light, all of Einstein's work is gone. So it is an assumption that he makes. I don't want to make it sound like Aristotle was stupid and just making up these things. We do it today. We make a model. We make certain assumptions that we have to in order to make, in order to make the model. This is what he assumed. 
And it worked very well for over a thousand years, longer than our current models have been around. Eratosthenes was able to measure the size of the Earth. So what he looked at was two locations in, uh, down in Egypt here, one up on the Mediterranean, one a little further south. And what he found was that on the first day of summer, this well here, he looked down this deep well, the sun was shining straight down it. Meant the sun was straight overhead. However, if you traveled up to Alexandria, up on the Mediterranean, so here at this location, the sun was shining straight down on you. Here there was a little bit of an angle. So if you were making a solar observation at this location on this day, you would have gotten no shadow, nothing. There would no shadow would be cast. Up here you would have gotten a little tiny shadow. And you could measure that angle. And I'm not going to go through the details of the math of what he did, uh, but just geometrically was able then to say, if we know how far apart these two locations are and we know the angle, we can then figure out the circumference of the Earth. We believe he was pretty accurate. Difficulty was that we don't have accurate understanding of how they went about what their units were and how they were measured. There were variations. If we use the standard ones, he was actually to within 5-10% of the size of the Earth. Not bad, thousands of years ago. Couldn't walk around the whole Earth, but got a very good measurement of it. Hipparchus gave us a couple of things. Uh, he gave us magnitudes, which I'll talk about coming up in another month or so. I'll go into a lot more detail. Essentially, it's a way of looking at the brightness of the stars. So we divide, he divided them up based on how bright they appear in the sky. And he gave us first magnitude stars, which were the brightest. Second were the next grouping. Third, fourth, fifth, and sixth were the ones you could barely see. And again, I'm going to go through this in uh, more detail. Uh, later on, I don't want to concentrate on that too much right now, except that you've seen it and know that it's coming. What I wanted to look at a little bit more was precession. Precession is important because the Earth spins. And it spins just like a top. And if you've ever watched a top spin, it spins really quick on its axis, but it also has that slow motion where it goes around and the axis of the top points in different directions. The Earth does exactly the same thing. The Earth's North Pole is slowly changing position. It takes 26,000 years for it to make a complete circle, right? but it does slowly change its position over those 26,000 years. And that's why I said that Polaris was the pole star now, but it won't always be. Right now, this, where are we right now? Uh, 2,000 years. That's year zero, year 2,000. We're really close to Polaris. 2,000 years ago, the pole was right here and there wasn't a bright star near it. 2,000 years from now, well, we'll be close to this star, relatively bright. Other times there'll be stars, other times there'll be gaps where there is nothing, where we will not be close to it. I don't know if this one will play or not on here. This is supposed to rotate, but it probably won't right now. But essentially what it's showing is how this would rotate. Oh, there it goes. I just had to wait a second how the Earth's pole is changing. Now that's that circle that took a second there takes 26,000 years to go. So it is slowly changing. Right now we happen to be located in the direction of Polaris. That won't always be the case. That will slowly change over time. So we're not always pointing in the same direction. And that is changing. Essentially that changes the astronomers. All of their coordinate systems are constantly changing. Everything that they use for coordinates change because the position of the pole is changing. 
Imagine how trying to find position on Earth we use latitude and longitude. If the North Pole moved and the equator moved on a daily basis, your coordinates would have to be changing. That's what, hap- that's what happens to astronomers trying to determine positions in the sky. Small, but even over 26,000 years, when you're trying to point, even over a year out of that 26,000, when you're trying to point a telescope precisely at a specific sm- tiny point in the sky, it's really important to know what coordinates it was measured under, what year, because it's constantly changing. Now, the big, big one I wanted to talk about at this time was Ptolemy. As we go through these, Ptolemy gave us the model of the geocentric universe. Aristotle gave us the basics. Ptolemy put the whole mathematical thing together in a multi-volume work called the Almagest. Did I give you the title there? No. Almagest is the greatest work. It means the greatest work. So it was actually put together. And this is the basis of it. But it was a lot more complicated than this. A lot more complex. But this is how the universe worked, how the solar system worked. And essentially, you had the Earth, not quite at the center, but close to the center. This, would, this little line here would be the center. And the planet would, and this, this B here would be what everything orbits around. And that would be, the orbit C would have been the overall orbit of the planet. But the planet was never on its orbit. It was actually on what we call an epicycle. So you had this big circle and this little circle here centered on it. That whole circle would move around here while the planet here in the red would be moving around on this smaller circle. Complicated, but it works. It worked with the understanding of the day because the Earth wasn't moving. They could not understand and there was no demonstration. We could prove that the Earth was round. We could not demonstrate at that time that the Earth was moving. So because we couldn't, the Earth had to be sitting still and this model works. It explains you could use this by adjusting the size of this orbit and the speed of things in this orbit you could predict where Mars was going to be next week, and next month, and next year, and you could do it very accurately. In fact, accurately enough that it worked just fine. For the accuracy of the observations you could make, it was just fine. Yes, sir? Yes? I'm sorry? Do we base anything off of it today? Not really. No. But it is a good model, and it works. It works very well. It, it lasted for a thousand years as the way of predicting the positions of the planets. So it couldn't have been too horrible. We know it's wrong and it's not how things work. But models we have today probably are wrong too. They're just the best we have at predicting things. This was the best model of the time that explained how everything worked. It, might, it seems silly to you now. How is this, what is this thing orbiting around? There's nothing there. So this is empty space. How is it orbiting around empty space? I mean that kind of confusing when you look at the sun trying to go around here. How is this big massive sun orbiting around the Earth? A lot of this we didn't know, right? 2,000 years ago, we did not know these things. So we didn't, gravity was Isaac Newton. We're still thousands of years away from understanding. Gravity existed, obviously, but we're still thousands of years away from understanding the concept of gravity. Things moved how they moved, and that explained it. So it was a perfectly good model to explain what things were. It's wrong. Yes, we know it's wrong, but it really worked really well. And we'll see coming up in the next chapter how we changed it. But, oops, there we go. What happened afterwards, and I like to put a little aside on this because a lot of uh, textbooks sometimes kind of jump and go, I don't, can't remember whether yours does or not. I always put this in anyway. But textbooks go from the Greeks and uh, Ptolemy and then all of a sudden jump to Copernicus, who we'll come back to in a little bit. 
a lot went on in those thousand plus years. It's not like everything stopped with Ptolemy and we used that exact model for thousands of years and then we changed it. The model was still being adjusted. And Europe went into the Dark Ages, so the fall of Rome, Western science went downhill, but science didn't stop. Science continued, especially out in India, in the Arab regions. A lot of the works of the Greeks were preserved there. They translated the Greek works and they built upon them. So things like algebra, right? if you hate algebra, you get to blame the Arab, you can blame the Greeks for um, geometry, you can blame the Arabs for coming up with algebra, you can blame Isaac Newton for coming up with calculus if you've tried to go, ever tried to go that far in mathematics. Um, they were all developed. So they actually developed mathematics that were needed. You know, the Greeks did everything geometrically. They didn't have algebra. So there was no algebra when the Greeks or when Ptolemy was doing this. It was a, I think his set of volumes was like 12 or 15 volumes of work. It was all geometrical. He did not have any algebra to be able to explain that. But there, was adva there were advances, um, better ways to try to explain it, to refine it as observations got better and better to try to better explain those observations. So a lot of work was done and then came back during the Renaissance. A lot of it came back through, uh, in through Spain and back into Europe uh, from the astronomers who had saved that. A lot of that work was destroyed when the Library of Alexandria was burned. Right? Remember, not today. You want to make another copy of a book, it's easy, it's all digitized and you got a PDF of it and boom, boom, boom. Well, here if you wanted to copy a book, you had to hand write the whole book again. We're way before printing press. Printing press was closer to Renaissance times. So there's no printing press, no way to print a book. If you wanted to recopy a book or a work, you had to take that whole book and rewrite the whole thing. And that's a lot of what was done at the time. So why did things go so, so slow? How did you communicate? How did you get that work? You couldn't send it to your colleagues around the world by sending an email out and here's my work. And all of a sudden hundreds of people see it. Here it would take a long, long time to be able to get that work to others. Alrighty, so finishing up this section, um, we talked about why it was important a little bit for timekeeping, calendars, navigation, and we looked at Stonehenge, I mentioned some other monuments that were probably used for timekeeping uh, effects. The Greek astronomers uh, told me finally put all together and gave us the geocentric model, the basis of the model that we use today, that was refined by Indian and Arab astronomers, gave us some of the math that we needed to be able to continue to solve it, made some modifications to it, but never really went away from anything with the Earth being at the center. So they refined and then improved upon that work. All right, and we'll come back to that in a minute, but I have kind of one that's a little bit of an aside here I wanted to talk about uh, that your textbook goes through on astronomy and astrology. So I want to talk about those two. You know, I'll always get the emails if somebody wants to take my astrology course or wants to enroll in my astrology course. So I have to kind of explain a little bit that there's a little bit of a difference now, but there wasn't not that long ago. So in reality, what do we mean by astrology? It's really a lot different than what we use today. Typically astrology today is what? You know, a couple sentences you get online, newspaper that tells you what your day is going to be like uh, based, on when, based on when you were born. It's not really, that's really a lot different than that. Long ago there were seven objects that were known that wandered through the sky. The sun and the moon and the five known planets. They were important. They were all different 
That's actually where our days of the week come from. I think I'll mention that again later on. But seven ob why do we have seven days in a week? Because there's a day for the sun, a day for the moon, and a day for each of the five planets. And depending on what language you look at them in, it doesn't work in English. Some of them are, right? Sunday, obviously, Monday. But if you look at them in uh, French or Spanish, you can see this is a day for Mercury and a day for Venus and a day for Jupiter. So each of those, each, that's why there's seven days in a week, is because there's seven objects that were known to the ancients. You know, why not? If they'd known one more, we would have had eight days in a week. Or if, one, if Saturn couldn't have been detected, we would have had six days in a week, probably. So it all comes down to that. But these objects were given really big significance, and it was thought not all that long ago. I mean, some people will still argue that they can impact people's lives today. So there's a sketch of some of those constellations. Again, you know how they've put the drawings together, but you know them by name, Taurus, Aries, Pisces, Aquarius, etc. They're very familiar constellations to you, I, th I think. What is special? Nothing. About them in terms of bright stars, I'm trying to think off the top of my head. Let's see, Aquarius has no bright stars, Pisces has none, Aries has none, Cancer has none, Libra has none, Sagittarius and Capricorn. So I think that's more than half of them that have no bright star, no real bright stars in them. Yes. Did they add one? No, there is another constellation that the sun will actually pass through based on the modern definition. There is a thing, I mean, it's not, not that it was ever a, I mean, there, one or something? Was a, I saw there was, there is a constellation between Scorpius and Sagittarius in here that the sun actually spends a lot more time in. But remember how the definition of the constellation changed? In ancient times, that constellation was not, was considered all part of Scorpius. Right now, if you're a Scorpio, um, you had to have been born in about a six day period because that's about all the time the sun ever spends in that constellation. There is another one, it's called Ophiuchus, that the sun does spend a lot of time in, but it's not, um, unless astrologers use it, I mean astronomers don't consider it a constellation of the zodiac, they still consider these 12. But there is actually that other constellation that the sun does spend some time through. That's the ones that the suns, the moons, and the planets will travel through. Yeah? Depending on what you look at, it changes for those dates though, so why? It can change because of precession. Remember how the coordinates are always changing? That means 26,000 years ago, everything would have been lined up just right. But over time, it slowly changes. The positioning is changing. So now we're about one, one zodiac sign off. Yeah, so you're all, everybody is, you know, what the newspaper says is one sign off from what you're actually, where, where the sun was when you were born. And you can actually, there's places online you can actually go look up where was the sun really when I was born. You can put in your date and it'll tell you exactly where the sun, where the sun was. All right, so looking a little more, in reality, we're all changing and we're looking at these. That's really just the path. And again, it's Scorpius. Most of Scorpio is way down below the path of the sun. It's just this little bit that it passes through up at the top. So it spends a lot more time in, again, I'm not, you can look up the name. It's Ophiuchus is the one that it actually passes through. So that's where it actually spends a lot more time than, the, uh, than through, Scorp through Scorpius. And they're all not exactly the same. Now that we've defined constellations, when astrologers did this centuries ago, everything was even. It was divided into 12 even blocks. Well, now that we've redefined the constellations, some of them are bigger. So sometimes it'll spend, instead of 30 days, it might spend 40 days in one constellation and only 20 in another. 
because we've defined where the boundaries of those constellations are from what they were in ancient times. So some things have changed because, because of that as well. Some of the constellations are much bigger. Pisces stretches across a longer region of the sky than something like Aries. So some of those have actually changed a little bit. But real astrology, not, not the stuff, not your sun sign, your little two sentence blurb that tells you what you know, one twelfth of the world is going to be like. Right? Except if you divide everybody evenly, about one twelfth of the population will all have the same day according to that. But real astrology is what they call the natal astrology, which takes not just where the sun was where you, when you were born, but where the moon and all the planets were. So, you know, was Mars, Mars was in Taurus or something makes a, makes a difference, whether Mars was in Taurus at the time or Mars was in Gemini. That tells different things, according to astrology, tells different things about your life. So in order to really do astrology, you actually have to know not just where the sun was, but you've got to know where all of these others were. Yeah? It's Ophiuchus. Yeah. Yeah, but it's never it's not a zodiac constellation. Astronomically, it's not. Uh, Maybe astrologers did something with it, but not ast- astronomically it's not considered. Yeah. And it's not new, it's been there for it's been there forever. Whether they've added it in, I've never seen any place add in a sign of Ophiuchus, so I don't know. But yeah. technically, yes, it's always been it's always been there. I mean, the constellation has always been there. But they may, may someone may some astrologer might have said, oh, let's make a new one and add it in now. Yeah, 2016. Yeah. They yeah. Yeah. They may have done. I mean, astronomers don't consider it a constellation of the zodiac, though. Mm-hmm. Still. I'm sorry. No bright stars. No. No. Nothing bright. So if you really want to do this, this is what's going to determine, you know, if you're believing in astrology, this is what's going to determine it. Not just the sun, but you need to know all these different things at the instant of your birth. And it also depends on the date and the time of your birth, because it doesn't only matter whether where the planets were, but what was rising, what was setting. So if Mars is rising as you were born, it meant one thing. If Mars was setting, it meant something else. So depending on the exact time of your birth, so people could be born the same day, Right? Mars is rising and setting during that day, so someone born, born early in the day might be born as Mars is rising. Someone born later that day, 12 hours later, could have been born as Mars is setting. That would mean two completely different things for their, for their overall horoscope. Um, early astronomers like the Greeks told me, we talked at Almagest, I give you the name now, Almagest was his great work in astronomy, but he also did a big work in astrology. Even not that, even just a few hundred years ago, there wasn't a big difference between astronomy and astrology. They've deviated uh, quite a bit over the last few hundred years. Uh, but it's still the basis. What Ptolemy gave us is still the basis of the overall astrology that's used today. So uh, doing the horoscope, again, we divide the sky into 12. The astrologers divide it uniformly, not the way the astronomers do. And the sun spends pretty close to exactly one month in, in each constellation. We mentioned, I told you that they changed. That's precession. It's slowly changing the whole positioning on the sky. So what things were like a thousand years ago when it was put together isn't the same as they are now. So you're now all about one zodiac sign off. So for example, I give you an example. May 6th, the sun was in Aries. Okay, if you follow horoscopes, May 6th is a Taurus, right? May 6th, your horoscope would say Taurus. So you're really, everybody is all uh, pretty much one constellation off. Unless you're at the very beginning of one, you might be now at the very edge, very edge of it. I'm sorry? How, how quickly has that changed? Just with 
been generation-wide? No, that take, it, it takes 26,000 years. So you'd go one constellation about every couple, every thousand, 1,800 years. So it takes a long time for it to change. It's not something that changes quickly. But it's, very, but it's very slow and it's constant. So you know, if, if May 6th is at the edge, you know, maybe a couple hundred years, couple hundred years from now, or a couple hundred years, it will change by a day or two. So it's not, you know, not within your lifetime it's going to change, but over you know, thousands, hundreds and thousands of years, it does change significantly. All right, um, so what we look at, the newspaper, internet, horoscopes, are looking at just your sun sign. So, that means if you divide things by 12, that's about 8% of the population has the exact same prediction. So everybody who is a Taurus is going to have the same little blurb that's going to tell them what their day is going to be like. The complete horoscope uses the sun, the moon, and all of the planets. And there's also, it's not considered science because it's open to interpretation too. Because it also you have to interpret what does it mean when, the sun, when the, this planet is in this constellation. There are some rules for interpretation, but there's also judgment. So if you had two astrologers, do your complete horoscope. Cast your complete horoscope, you'd get variations. There's not an exact hard set of rules like there are you know, in science. Say you, every, you give every uh, scientist a calculation to do with Newton's law of gravity, they're hopefully, barring mistakes, going to get the same answer. If you have a bunch of astrologers cast your horoscope, they're going to give you variations. Maybe slight variations, maybe bigger variations, depending on their interpretation. Um, so again, some of the astronomers that we haven't talked about yet but are coming up very soon here were actually astrologers and astronomers. Galileo is probably one you've heard of. They, they cast horoscopes too, so they weren't just astronomers. So even Galileo lived in the 1600s, we're only talking 400 years ago, that people who were doing astronomy were also in charge of casting horoscopes. It was by the 700s they started to separate as to one studying the sky and one studying how the sky's impact, how the sky might impact on our, uh, on our lives. What we look at astrology now is what is called a pseudoscience. So what do we mean by pseudoscience? It uses scientific terminology and in fact to cast a horoscope you've got to do some complex calculations. You've got to figure out exactly where all these planets were the day someone was born. Okay, big deal today, right? You put it in a computer and it's going to tell you. What did you do a hundred years ago? Or a thousand years ago? You, know, you had to do it all by hand. So it was time consuming and as time consuming as any other astronomy. So it's not based on testing. So that's what we mean in terms of a science. There's no testing. So if you do statistical studies and they've been done, they don't find any relationship between a horoscope and their lives. The thing is, you know, the horoscopes, if you read them, right, they're vague enough that you can kind of, well, yeah, that kind of fits my day today. You know, you can usually find, they're usually going to be vague enough, especially the ones that are done in the, in the papers on the internet today. So let me finish up here and we can get back to, uh, uh, regular astronomy, but I do like to at least cover this a little bit. And again, astrology is based on the, where the positions of all of these objects were and how that could per potentially affect our lives. In reality, there is nothing. There's no uh, positioning, no gravity. They're not going to affect it. The gravitational forces would be minuscule between any of these planets and anything here on the Earth. Um, astronomy, we're looking at celestial objects. Astrology is looking at how they might affect our lives. But they've deviated 
hundreds and thousands of years ago, they were the same. You did the same people did them. Nowadays, you're not going to find a professional. Okay, maybe you'll find one somewhere, but you're not going to likely to find a professional astronomer who also considers him or herself an astrologer. It's going to be very, uh, very unusual to find that, you know, if you find any. And any statistical studies have shown that there's really no basis or truth to astrology. All right, questions? Before we finish up this chapter, this is the last section here, we're going to look at you know, what happened. So what did happen when all of that material that was saved by the uh, Indian and Arab astronomers came back into Europe during the time of the Renaissance. And this is what we call the Copernican Revolution. Remember, I mentioned earlier on that Aristarchus gave us the idea of a heliocentric universe, but he was never taken seriously. And he was never taken seriously because there was no proof. The heliocentric universe actually made some predictions as to how things should look in the sky that we couldn't see. Turns out things were just too far away and the distances were too vast that the effects that he would have seen would have been invisible. He didn't have any telescopes, let alone a big enough telescope. So they would not have been able to detect them. So even though he was right, there was no evidence for it and he was not really taken seriously. But over time, things started to change. We got more and more accurate observations. And we were starting to find deviations between what Ptolemy's models predicted and what we had uh, what we were, and what we were finding. And Copernicus uh, came up with the suggestion that the Earth was a planet. And that all the planets, including the Earth, orbited the Sun. The nice thing about this is that it's a simpler model. It explained retrograde motion. Remember that backwards motion of the planets? Explains that very easily and naturally. Why do the planets go backwards? Well, the Earth passes it. Right? If they're all moving and the Earth is going faster than a planet, it looks, that planet looks like it goes backwards. You're on the highway passing a truck. It looks temporarily like the truck is going backwards. You still know it's going forward, but it's going forward at a slower rate than you. So it looks like it's going backwards. Well, he could explain retrograde motion very easily. Didn't need those little epicycles to explain why the planets were going backwards. But he still needed epicycles. I put a question mark there because he actually still needed epicycles. Because while Copernicus gave us one big change that said everything orbited the sun, which was important, he also left everything as circles. Going back to Aristotle, it was still the heavens were perfect, so everything moved in circles. So this is an example of what uh, the heliocentric model of Copernicus was. There was the sun at the center, Mercury, Venus, there's the Earth with the moon, and then Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, and the sphere of the stars. So it gave some very good things, but it also wasn't immediately accepted because it didn't do any better than any of the previous measurements. The one thing it did do, well, it put the sun at the center of the universe. So it kicked the Earth out, but it made the sun the center of everything. Earth and planets all going around the sun, and it explained retrograde motion. It predicted what we call the parallax of stars. So it made a prediction. It's a good scientific model because it makes a prediction. But you've got to be able to detect it, too. So what is parallax? Parallax is the apparent motion of a nearby object relative to a more distant object. It's a prediction of the heliocentric model. If the Earth moves, then the Earth is on one side of the Sun here. Six months later, it's on the other side of the Sun. 
and this nearby star is going to appear to change its position relative to a more distant star. Right? I, see the, I, get, I see parallax all the time while I'm walking in, across the class. I see people against one wall, especially in the front, and then if I walk to the other side, all of a sudden someone's against the other wall. Their position has changed. Someone in the back row has changed a lot less. Their position has changed a lot less. So I'm seeing parallax. If I wanted to make measurements of how far I moved and the angles, I could figure out how far away somebody was. That's, what you can, that's one of the ways to actually determine distances that we'll look at. But it was a prediction. For right now, it's just important that you'd see the shift of these stars. And we looked and we looked and we looked and we couldn't find it. Greeks looked for it. Even at the time here, it was still looked for, but it is a prediction. So it's one of those tough things for Copernicus's model. It made a prediction that we weren't able to find. We weren't able to see that it was coming true. And in fact, it wasn't until 1838 that we actually detected it. Copernicus's model had been accepted for other reasons by then as other things happened to work, but the actual detection of parallax was not until long after his death. When was he? Died in 1543. So talking almost 300 years after his death that we actually detected it. The other thing was retrograde motion. I mentioned that. I can show it again here. Um, it's that backwards motion of the planets. We can explain it in one of two ways. We can explain it here that the planet is not really going backwards, but it just appears to when you pass close to it. So as the blue Earth here passes red Mars, as it comes around here again, it's going to go past it. Mars is still moving forward, but if you're on Earth, it's going to look like it goes backwards. Just like that truck or car that you're passing on the highway. Right? It looks temporarily relative to distant objects that it's going backwards. We know it's still going forward, but it looks like it's going backwards. The, the heliocentric model, the geocentric model, had the Earth not moving, the Sun going around it, and then as the planet came in on the epicycle, it would make this little backwards loop. It was physically going the other direction. Understanding gravity, this makes no sense, but again, we were long before gravity. We, either one could explain the model. The difficulty was that because he used circles, it was no more accurate than the geocentric model. So it still required epicycles, smaller ones, to account for the motions of the, of the planets. And that's because he was using circular orbits. I say it's no more accurate, meaning that if we wanted to predict where Mars was and we used the heliocentric model, we'd get one position, we'd, get, we'd use the geocentric model, we'd get another position, and neither one was any further off than the other. They were both roughly the same. We do know, of course, now that it's much more realistic. That's really what's happening. But we still need another astronomer to give us something else that tells us about these orbits and why they're, uh, what, what, the, what is different about the orbits, that they're not circular. So that's the reason it wasn't immediately accepted. It took well over 100 years, probably, before it was actually accepted. Uh, that we actually could find that it made this prediction that we could not detect. So, so scientifically, weren't ignoring things, but hey, it makes this prediction. We should be able to see this, and we can't. So that was one of the problems with the heliocentric model. Which leads us to another astronomer, Galileo, um, who was, was sometimes considered the first scientist. He did a few things. He talked about um, experiments in motion. We'll talk a little bit more about that later when we get to Newton in the next chapter. 
He also talked about how ob all objects accelerate at the same rate due to gravity. Right? The, the famous one is dropping two balls off the leaning tower of Pisa that he supposedly did and finding that an iron ball and a wooden ball landed at essentially the same time. Whereas predictions earlier would have said the iron ball would have landed a lot fast, would have hit the ground a lot faster because it had more mass. Again, we're going to come back to that when we talk about motion in Newton, so I'll come back to that later. The big thing I wanted to talk about with Galileo is the telescope. He didn't invent the telescope, although he's sometimes given credit for that. But he heard about it, never saw one, and built his own. So he heard about this uh, a Dutch optician who had developed this object, heard about how it worked, put it together, ground a few little lenses, and he was the first, at least, to observe the sky and record and publish his, his observations. Whether anyone else actually looked at the sky, we don't know, but he was the first one to actually give us a record of what he saw. And he saw a lot. Even his small telescope gave us some amazing things that we saw. And I'm going to show you some pictures. I'm going to give you the list here of what he discovered. And then you can look at the, and then I'm going to show you a few pictures on the next slide. But what objects are you going to look at? Well, you're going to look at the sun and the moon and the planets, most likely. And what he found was that things were different than what Aristotle told us. He found out that the sun has spots on it. A big deal. But Aristotle said everything in the heavens was perfect, and now the sun has these splotches on it. It's not perfect. And that it rotates. The sun was actually moving and rotating as well. When we look at the moon, right, we see splotches on the moon, but he could actually see with his telescope that there were craters, he could see mountains, and he could see valleys. The moon looked a lot like the Earth. Like you have mountains and valleys on the Earth, we had mountains and valleys on the moon. When he looked at Venus, he saw that what you can't see with the eye, that Venus goes through a complete set of phases. Now we do phases in a couple chapters of the moon, but you know what, you know, I think you know what I mean. You can have a full moon, you can have a thin crescent moon. He found out that Venus did the same thing. That meant, because it went through a complete cycle of phases, it had to orbit the sun. Both models, the geocentric of Ptolemy and Copernicus's model, made two different predictions about how the phases were going, how the phases would work. And he found out that in order to do this, that, that Ptolemy's model was incorrect. So once Galileo made this observation, that showed that Ptolemy was incorrect. Didn't prove Copernicus, but it fit Copernicus's model. So Copernicus's model can explain this. So it's better than Ptolemy's, which cannot explain this observation. When he saw Jupiter, he actually saw four, well, he called them stars around it. But Jupiter had these four stars that he tracked and found that they orbited. Well, that meant, again, not a big deal, but it did mean that not everything had to orbit the Earth. And one of the things of Aristotle, that Earth was at the center and everything was orbiting around the Earth. This was the first evidence that we'd seen of something that was not orbiting the Earth. Saturn, he saw the rings, but he couldn't see the rings. He saw that there were these big blobs on either side of Saturn, that it wasn't just a nice round disk, that there was something going on there. But his telescopes were tiny. Right, we'll look at telescopes. We'll talk about telescopes with mirrors that are meters in size. You know, One meter mirror, that's a small one nowadays. There are mirrors that would not fit in this room. I mean, some of their biggest telescopes now. Galileo's were about 3 quarters of an inch. They were tiny. Still a lot bigger than, your, a lot bigger than the pupil of your eye, which is what's gathering light before that. But they were very, very tiny. So he couldn't actually see the rings, but he knew there was something weird going on with Saturn. The Milky Way, 
Right? Looks like that faint patch of light, but when you point a telescope there, he found out that it was made of countless stars, that there were actually stars, so there were more stars than Aristotle had said, that there was supposed to be a finite number of stars, there were not. Yeah? I thought the sun was just like a ball of like, fire. How did he see spots? It is a ball of gas, but when you come to the sun, we'll see there are actually spots, there are dark spots on it. It's not mountains or anything, it's just darker, cooler areas of the patches of the sun. Oh, you can see the actual like Earth? You can see the actual, you can actually see dark spots. I don't want to go through the whole detail of what a sunspot is right now, but there are actually cooler areas on the surface of the sun that he was able to detect. Yeah, right when you're looking at it, so you could see the surface, yeah. So it, but it is a big ball of gas, but it does have some darker patches on it. Here's some of his sketches. So here's what he saw with the moon. He could actually see some craters, some detail on that. When he saw Venus, he saw the different phases, going from a full phase all the way to a thin crescent phase. And again, that's something that Ptolemy could not explain. He could not explain this full set of phases. Uh, these are some of his sketches of Jupiter, Jupiter being the big circle, and then there's all these four little stars that were sometimes on one side, sometimes on the other. So you could track it in terms of orbits. Yeah? We couldn't. We can't see them. He didn't have a telescope. This is, these are the same things that we finally found when we had a telescope. So Ptolemy didn't ignore them, he just didn't know. If we'd known about the phases of Venus at the time, then that would have been, then they would have had to figure something else out then. Or ignore them, but you know. So, yeah. So seeing Jupiter, you could see those stars, the stars, we now know that they're the four large moons of Jupiter that were orbiting around it. You could find out their orbital periods. You knew that something was orbiting Jupiter. That was important because we knew that Jupiter could move and not leave things behind. We're still pre-gravity. How can something move and have things orbited? If it's moving, why aren't they left behind? But if you don't understand gravity, that makes sense. Well, how, well it can't move and things would be left behind. That was one of the arguments that the Earth couldn't move. Well, the moon would be left behind. Now, we understand gravity today and that explains it, but we're still not up to Isaac Newton, who's in the next chapter. So. Finishing up with Galileo here, uh, he published this work in 1610. Um, in 1616, he, the Inquisition banned his books uh, that said that anything supporting the heliocentric, the heliocentric theory was considered heresy. Um, a little while later, after that time, he kind of went off and did a lot of stuff on motion, so that's why there's kind of a big gap here. He didn't do nothing, he was starting to look at motion. Uh, but in 1632, he published a book, which, is, which was his big work, The Dialogue Concerning the Two Chief World Systems. What that means, the geocentric theory and the heliocentric theory. Those were the two chief systems that could explain how the skies moved. And he was tried by the Inquisition, found guilty of holding teaching slash defending the heliocentric view, and was then placed under house arrest until his death uh, about a decade later. Um, Vindicated later in 1820, um, even before we'd found parallax, the books were removed. So Galileo's books, books and Copernicus's books were then removed from the index. And it was not until 1992 that he was formally cleared by the church. So what really happened there? Um, one of the problems was that Galileo had no proof. He could show that the geocentric theory was wrong if you believed his telescope. This is a brand new instrument. You have to think about this too. You know, you've grown up hearing about telescope. This is all of a sudden brand new. 
It's like, you know, scientists come up with this great new machine and it finds something new. People are going to question it because, well, is it showing you the real view? So people would argue that one of the arguments would be that, well, the telescope's distorting things. That's not how the sky really looks. We hadn't been using telescopes for hundreds of years at the time. It was a brand new instrument. So there were questions as to whether it was giving you a realistic view. So we didn't have any proof. He did, could show, if you believed his observations, you could show that Venus had to orbit the sun. You could show that. You couldn't show that the Earth had to be orbiting the sun. Some of the problems that were going on at the time, though, um, this is the time, right, if you studied history, the Reformation is not long before this. So the church was going through a lot of turmoil and losing power. I mean, if you think about it, during the Dark Ages, you know, the church was the government for most of Europe. That was it. So losing power, uh, no one likes to lose power in general, so it was struggling to hold on to what it had. And you know, generally, things people, people or companies will clamp down on anything that is dissent. So a lot of that is probably what happened as well. There were some internal political issues as well as to, you know, we don't like somebody, you know, this kind of thing that will happen as well. And Galileo wasn't, you know, the kind little sweet guy either. He was very abrasive, uh, could come across as, you know, I'm right, blah, 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 you know, I'm going to do this this way. And he did not come across very uh, nice. And he did portray defenders of the geocentric theory, which was interpreted by many to be the pope as being a very simple-minded person. So some of the things Galileo could have done differently, you know, maybe, maybe would have saved him a little bit of what he went through. Um, but he was not you know, just a kind, per, kind little scientist working alone. He did have a very abrasive and not, an easy, not necessarily an easy person to get along with. Yeah? They cleared him in 1892 or 19. 1992 was when he was officially cleared. That doesn't mean that they hadn't accepted, but that's when, he, that's when they officially removed his conviction from the, from the records. It was 1992, yeah. Yes. So let me finish up here, and that way I got through this whole chapter, and then I will uh, let anyone who needs to finish up the lab, we can take the last few minutes working on that. So Copernicus, we talked about a couple of astronomers here, primarily Copernicus and Galileo. Um, we're getting some of the ideas, but we don't quite have all the motions yet. We're still stuck using, using, yeah. We're still stuck using epicycles for Copernicus's model. We need a better model. We need something that is going to be able to explain the motions without having to use those epicycles. We want to start to get a much simpler type of orbit. And that's what I'll look at when we do the lab, when we do uh, class on Thursday. I'll talk about uh, Kepler. Uh, Tycho, Kepler, and Newton, who went through a lot more and gave us a much better idea of how things actually worked. So if you're done with the lab, you're done. Just make sure if you're doing the extra credit assignment if you're, and you haven't emailed me yet, make sure I get that by 8 o'clock so I can respond to you. And otherwise, I'll stick around. We'll work on anybody who needs to finish up the lab. And I'll see everyone else on Thursday.